Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Greatest Game, a limited-run podcast series from video games and culture site OK Beast that explores philosophy, aesthetics, and art theory through the lens of video games. I'm Chase Williams, and today I'm honored to have Jono Peck as my guest. Jono is the host of the Distinguished Puttin' in Work podcast and a published author of fiction with his book, The Spy and the Maven. Jono, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Chase. It's good to be here making my podcast debut on the OK Beast network. Wow, is that the case? Those nice boys, yeah. They, they never invited me, but even though they've been on my podcast twice, but you know, right. bless and Alex, bless you. No pun intended. <laughs> I'll smuggle you in because in a lot of ways, I feel like I smuggle myself into their website <laughs> quite often as well. So. Yeah. I've written an article for them too. So yeah. I'm just saying, I've got a resume now. I've made my way through the back door here with this <laughs> podcast, but I'm very pleased to be doing it with you, Chase, because uh, I've had a fair degree of interest in your work with PlayStation in the past. So mm. it's cool to get into some of this finer details of games and narrative because, you know, that's one of my like we all play games for different reasons, but narrative for me is very much a um, big part of it. Yeah. And I find that narrative is almost the dominant feature in most people's critical judgment of games these days. Mm. I have been kind of one who at the early stages of my understanding of games was trying to push back on that because I would see reviews dominated by narrative talk. And Mm. for a long period of time, actually, I was one of the people who was in the camp of video games are a poor medium for storytelling. The medium itself erodes their ability to tell stories. And it was actually over the past year and a half of studying some more authors that my opinions on this have completely done a 180. Hmm. And I think a lot of people will say video games tell stories in their own way. And I think that's absolutely true. But what I try to do is really get down into the nitty gritty of where that is. And I'm extremely excited to have you on the show because you are a published author of fiction, which means you it was, you know, you privileged the idea of making an interesting narrative. That's something that you have done. And I'm really interested to put some of these concepts kind of to the fire (laughs) and come outside of like my hold up dark scholarly room and see if any of these kind of like ring true with you and and just see where the conversation kind of goes. Yeah, it sounds cool, man. So we're going to still be drawing from a lot of the concepts that were laid out in the previous three episodes of this podcast. Again, it's a limited run series, so it comes in waves, this being the first episode of a few new ones, which, you know, I'm excited to bring it back. Uh, So if you haven't listened to the previous three episodes, I would definitely recommend it. They are going to lay out, especially in the first, a lot of just definitions and concepts that we're going to be touching upon and revisiting here. And while we may kind of refresh our memories, uh, we're going to kind of assume that you're on board with what has been said before. And the other thing that I want to mention is that basically all of the ideas in this episode are still drawing heavily from the book, The Aesthetic of Play, which is written by Brian Upton. And at this point, if you've heard me talk about video games, you've probably heard me mention this book too many times. And <laughs> it's another endorsement that if, if you're super interested in getting much deeper in your understanding of games... This was a perspective-changing book for me, and I would recommend it to anyone. And eventually, we will get to new material on the show, but there's just so much more in this text to be said that I don't want to move on from it yet, you know? Makes sense. 
All right, let's bust into it. Now, the first thing that I want to talk about is basically the concept of narrative play and how Brian Upton puts this forward towards the reader is he highlights a kind of dichotomy uh, in game scholarship, a common attitude. And that is that games are nonlinear and open, giving players the opportunity to freely move in their structure and make meaningful choices to arrive at a variety of destinations. And in comparison, books are linear and closed, forcing readers down a predetermined path towards an inevitable conclusion. And when we talk about games being open here, we're quite literally talking about their openness in allowing for narrative. And I think Breath of the Wild is a very easy example. And you hear a lot of people talk about that game's narrative you know, there's kind of the predetermined cutscenes, but what I heard a lot around the conversation around that game is you create your own story and how you choose to go about playing the game is your own narrative and that is extremely open. And in that way, the player is a participant in the story. And on the flip side, when people typically think of books and reading, the reader is simply just a spectator. And so where he really digs in and where things get interesting is if the book is closed and linear, then we would all sort of come to the same conclusions about what we've read. However, we know that's not the case because different readers read books in a variety of different ways. We argue about interpretations, about the motivations of characters, about different symbolism in works. And because we have those differences in interpretations, we know that there is actually openness in narratives, in books, and in movies as well. So that being said, some texts are more open than others. And we can kind of think about movies that have like a ton of interpretation. I think a good example is the end of Inception. Like you can essentially go around and around forever talking about what the end of that movie means. Whereas a totally closed text would be something like a car manual because there's no interpretation there. Mm -hmm. It's just a book that tells you how the car works. And in those books that are like extremely open or even games that are very open, I think a game like inside where the ending is just, it's just like, what the hell, Um, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if anyone knows what happened there. (laughs) Right. And I think it would honestly be like a fool's errand to try to say that, you know, definitively what the answer is. Yeah. So those are kind of examples of how these interpretations actually can begin to really be quite different from one person to the other. Mm. And how we make those interpretive choices is sort of the nuts and bolts of what narrative play is here. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think another good example is like Mass Effect 3, where it's a game where there are choices made over the course of three entire games that uh, can change certain elements, but ultimately it's it's directing everyone towards a, a choice at the end of the third game. And each of those three choices has similarities, but despite that, people will debate what they each mean. And like there was a huge fan theory speculation at the time of indoctrination and all these kinds of things that weren't explicit in the cutscene to close the game. There was no text to explain like what was happening. It was just trying to decipher these scenes and they went back and added extra scenes when people kicked up a stink about that as well but right and, and that's a game you can talk about for in a lot of ways in in this context of uh the choices versus the the linearity as well but yeah i think in general 
you mentioned like books as an example where you're right like there's a ending that you arrive to but the interpretation can differ and it's all based on the meaning that you gather as you reach that conclusion so you might see one character as having these motivations from the start and someone else might go completely over their head or they might talk to you about that and go, well, I think you're actually wrong because you've read into it too much. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting and it comes back to, uh, I guess, the audience putting as much into it as they choose to. Yeah, and so this is where we kind of get to apply a lot of the definitions that we use to explain play spaces in video games and apply them to linear narrative. Again, linear in the sense that what we read in a book or what we see in a movie is a fixed string of words or a fixed string of moving images. And we can't choose what's coming next, but instead we're choosing what it means. And so this kind of brings us to navigating what is a narrative play space and Hmm. kind of thinking of narrative or of a book as a play space. And instead of a fixed text, I thought was very interesting because instead of the rules of a game being like the systems and the mechanics, you know, and, quite literally like the environment that you're in or the physics of it all, the rules of a story are essentially just the words or like the chapter structure. Mm. And that kind of creates the space where people's interpretations are allowed to bounce off of. Those are kind of the hard extra textual um, constraints that exist. How Upton describes it is he essentially says stories are a series of beats which represent a horizon of intent. And again, a horizon of intent in the video game context is all of the possible moves that the player thinks they're allowed to make. So at any given time, like if you're standing there on a mountain in the Breath of the Wild, you're only going to make one move out of the possibility of moves that you think are there to be made. And so when you're given a story beat that essentially is new information that you didn't have before... And now you have to integrate that with all of the beats that came beforehand, and then it's going to kind of restructure what you think the future beats are going to be. And so that process of constantly accruing these story beats is where the mind is engaging with the work and trying to integrate what they have learned in the past and then taking what they just read and now interpreting what the future is going to be. And that horizon of intent, you know, there where ambiguity exists is a story can never mention the hero's clothing, but we may dress them in our minds. And so that is a move that we have kind of decided to make, even though it wasn't told to us directly. And then when we get into even deeper narratives, you know, people are going to uh, have conversations about the motivations of characters. Like, no, I don't think this was this character's motivation. He didn't walk into this land because of his relationship with his father. He did it for these reasons instead. Or you could even say like, no, I think this is what the text is saying about the, and Upton uses the concept of cruelty. So we can even try to get interpretive about what the text is saying, like even kind of outside itself. Which to me is kind of a lot of jargon. It gets a little esoteric, but does that kind of make sense to you in any way? Yeah, I think so. Like you only have to look at something like Stardew Valley where I'm I'm not as deep into it as a lot of people are because some some people are crazy and think that that's uh, (coughs) spending hundreds and hundreds of hours on that game is a a smart idea. Right. (laughs) Um, 
Shout out to, to NATO. But, you know, they, they will talk about these uh, these characters in the town and the limited text that you get from them and they paint these huge backstories of mm-hmm. why they say that and what they. I, I don't know if it's because there's little information about them but they extrapolate why they are that way and whether that person is a jerk or actually know they're awesome. And, like, mm-hmm. I've heard people disagree about these characters and which ones you should romance because they just obviously view them in a different way. They've filled in those deeper stories based on the little information that they have. Yeah, no, and it's, especially when there's little information, then it becomes, it really highlights like the subjective nature of experiencing artworks because it really is just kind of up to the person. You have like a, in that sense, it's almost like an open world game where you have Mm. a very small amount of constraints and a very huge possibility for you to make interpretive moves but ultimately to kind of drive home the fact that there is a huge degree of interpretation in reading open text is whenever we encounter plot twists because the very fact that plot twists exist means that our expectations were thwarted which means that we had expectations in the first place so as we're sitting there accruing new story beats we're basically anticipating what the next beats will be in a long chain in the same way that in a video game, you can interpret a chain of moves like in a chessboard, right? You can mm. think I'm going to make this move because I think four moves from now, my opponent will make this one. That's you thinking ahead into the future. And the same thing happens when you're reading a narrative. And so when you do have a plot twist, it's because you have expectations. And if reading were truly passive and truly kind of like strict and non-open as they sometimes are characterized to be, then plot twists would just have no power. You know, discovery of new information in a work is interesting when that information wasn't expected. And when that change in our expectations happens and shifts our understanding of the meaning of the story, it can kind of feel like a revelation or an epiphany. And you know, a lot of when I read a lot of this stuff out loud and I read my notes, a lot of it seems almost very simple and basic, but I like to put that information out there because I think it's just stuff that we almost take for granted. It's almost stuff that is operating uh, in the background of our minds that we're not thinking about, but is worth kind of remembering. And when we're reading a book, we're not sitting there every page thinking, okay, well this stuff just happened and now it's affected how I thought about the last four pages. And I think these next three pages are going to be like this. It's all happening very fluidly, you know, and, and usually below yeah, our you're just consuming yeah, it. below our conscious awareness. I think that ex- it shows the power of expectation in that almost every story has a plot twist or it should, because they are one of the most interesting, you know, mechanics or devices that you can use to, you know, get a reaction out of people or make them feel a strong connection or interest in what's taking place. Right. So to, to know that, there's probably going to be a twist in whatever story you're consuming and still be taken by surprise or or whatever. It really shows you the power of that passive or even a more active consumption of that story and that material. Right. Like when I when I'm writing my book, like for example, it's it's quite easy to to know when you have the whole story in your head of what's happening to just go, "Hmm, what if I hold back that piece of information yeah. and actually give that to the reader?" at this point in the story and what would that change from the the narrator's perspective but also the reader's perspective because in in my case the narrator like the reader only knows as much as the person that's in, uh, experiencing the the narrative 
So for me, one of the most basic elements of my story was the relationship between two characters that I actually decided to hold off and reveal halfway through. Mm. Um, And I think that, yeah, something like that just adds so much flavor to a story. And without those kinds of twists, like you think about any film or book that's really moved you or left a lasting impression, there's always a huge twist, whether it's a betrayal, whether it's, you know, things just not going the way expected. Even every story that you encounter, like anecdotally of someone that they told you at a bar or something, like mm-hmm. the best stories are always the ones that end or have a, a twist that you don't expect. So to, to talk about them in terms of expectation, like that really is... Some, I remember someone when I was a, a teenager actually telling me like, hey, I got to... I got to tell you something I found out like the formula for joke telling and this is going to yeah. ruin jokes for you forever. <laughs> it's basically just not what you expect. Like that's the punchline every time. <laughs> Whatever you think they're going to say, say something different and that's that's how you, that's how you make a joke. And I was like I've never forgotten that and it's basically true. Yeah, right. <laughs> um and it's it's when you boil it down like that's why things are funny. It's because they're unexpected often and yeah. I think that in in storytelling we get a lot of the same thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's super interesting to me and I wonder like with you when you're writing is is sort of the hardest part about getting all of the plot sort of together is it just how you reveal information essentially? I mean, I know there's mm. There's devices about, you know, how to actually move from one point to the other, but how much sort of deliberation goes into trying to understand what the the reader might be thinking, considering we can't control what they're thinking in the same way we can't control the way a player plays a video game. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of deliberation about is putting a lot of investment in this twist too obvious or will this actually be a surprise and is it too late in the book to reveal this or... You know, do I need to stick to the formulaic like midpoint turnaround that often writers will uh, reference about the way that they construct a story? So, yeah, it's definitely something that you have to consider. And uh, if you're writing it just organically from start to finish, you might think that that's the middle of the book and the best place to to put the twist or something. But then, you know, the the third act is a lot shorter than you expected, or you know, you might find that you have a lot more to tell, and there has to be. Yeah an extra series of events after the third act, then suddenly the third act isn't the third act. So, right. yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's a, a process and I'm quite new to this, so I'm by no means an expert. I'm uh, just over halfway through my second novel, but right I, think, yeah, I think that you just have to, like any content creation, think about what interests you as a, as a storyteller and as someone that has enjoyed a lot of other stories and try to apply it to, to what yeah. you're doing. And Brian Upton kind of talks about what he says is an oscillation between satisfaction and frustration in a text. Yeah, I like that too, yeah. <laughs> but, in, and that's something that I don't think about. Like, I don't think about like what's going to frustrate the reader. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and like what's frustrating may be that your prediction was wrong and mm. you it may be wrong because, hey, you didn't, expect it it came out of the blue and that's cool so maybe like frustrating in like the most mildest sense of the word or it could be frustrating in the sense that you thought like the story was really leading up to something and it either didn't play out that way um but what i also like is how when we get story beats and this is something he talks about is they also are going to affect the beats that came before them so yes we're making you know we have expectations about what's going to happen in the future but new information can totally snap your 
understanding of what came before in a very drastic way. And I, I like to give the example of Attack on Titan, actually, as something that was very frustrating for me. <laughs> um, the first few episodes, like the first five to eight episodes of this anime, which I'm going to spoil for you guys in case anyone hasn't seen it, the main <laughs> character gets killed in one of like the end of one of the episodes. And when I saw that, not knowing what the future was, I was like, this is awesome. Like in a very Game of Thrones like way, they just spent kind of four or five episodes making me invested in this character. Now he's dead. And this tells me so much about the world that we're in where anything like this can happen. But then it turned around in about one or two episodes and the main character came back in a very like supernatural way. And that immediately took that kind of awe and wonder and turned it into frustration for me because it was my expectation that he was gone forever. Mm. And when he wasn't, it didn't play out the way that I thought it would. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, I wanted to beat this level and I wanted to, you know, kill this boss finally. And I just can't that same sort of frustration is felt when it's just, I wanted the story to be this way and it isn't. Yeah. It's interesting. And I think like so many times I'm watching a movie or a TV show and I'm like, I want the story to end right now. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the, the happy moment before the third act or something. And I'm like, there's something inside me and maybe it's the side that wants like a happy ending and closure at, at the expense of actually telling a good story. It's just like, I want the movie to end. And mm-hmm. I know that like, that would not be the best thing for this movie. Like it would make no sense to end the movie yeah. here. And then there's something terrible that happens or, you know, it's the calm before the storm. <laughs> so it, it's interesting that like that frustration of like, ah, oh, like that was so close and everything fell apart or, and that's, you know, you ultimately get that sense of triumph at the end when they overcome whatever's coming. Yeah. But yeah, it is, it's such an interesting uh, way to break it down as like that satisfaction versus frustration. And it, it makes me, you know, as a writer who's, who's in the middle of a story think, okay, like I can look at certain things and go, yeah, actually I can see people would have been expecting uh, a, a certain closure in in this B plot or whatever and mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, that character disappears or suddenly it, it, it changes, the circumstances change completely because a new character is introduced or whatever it is and that might not have been what they expected and that might be a, a slight frustration or... Uh, there might be like a failure that causes that and then they have to ultimately find a way to work around it. So it, it's interesting just to, I guess, look at the, as you pointed out, like in the terms of like esoteric yeah. uh, definitions, but like to to look at the formula behind what I've been doing is, it, it's curious, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's always fascinating to me. Like there's there's game designers out there who, they're not watching video essays on YouTube about <laughs> the details in design and all that. But in a lot of ways, it's almost like a hobbyist type of thing to find those details. Mm. And I, all, I, the, you know, that's why even doing the show with you, I was kind of a little like anxious because this is like the, the intersection between like what a scholar thinks is happening versus what maybe just happens naturally for others. Yeah. But yeah, Ultimately, the the story is going to come to an end, and that is sort of when we have to take all of the beats as a whole. And this is usually when we talk about what the book means, mm. and we're usually talking basically about the final state we were in 
when the work ended. And in this way, it's very comparable to video games because when you come to the end of a game, whether because you hit the credits or because you don't want to play anymore or whatever, that kind of final state that you arrived at ends up being the meaning that you associate with the game. And, you know, once a story is over, you kind of have to look at everything as a whole. And that final headspace you were at in your interpretation ends up just kind of being what the what the story means. I find the conversation about meaning to be particularly an interesting one and meaning as this kind of like fluid process rather than a concrete thing, I think is most obvious when we are in a state of interpretation with like a a game or a book. And then once it's over, kind of what we're left with is what we're going to talk about. Yeah. I think uh, God of War, the PS4 version, is a really good example of that in terms of like the way that it ends. And I won't spoil with specifics, but I'll say like, if you don't want to know anything about the way this game ends, just skip forward by like 30 seconds. But basically, there's a big fight. And then that's not the end of the game. It's a quiet moment between characters that is like the final section of the game. Yeah. And, and that takes you by surprise because you're used to the climax being the end of the game. And similar to The Last of Us, there's like a, a big moment and then there's kind of a little quieter moment that has a lot of impact still, just like God of War. Yeah. And those moments are so powerful because they leave the gamer reflecting about the, you know, the emotional side of it, about what's ha- actually taken place over the course of the game, not just this cl- climactic battle that you expect to finish on a lot of time right so i think that uh yeah it's it's very important to to end the uh, a game or a story with something that is what the the creator wants people to to be thinking about once things uh you know once the pages close or once the tv's turned off and, and you can easily see and this was honestly a big criticism of inside it was a criticism that i didn't share but people who were looking to wrap up all the loose ends put a bow on it yeah. were like absolutely denied that <laughs> and that kind of leaves you with that feeling of meaninglessness where they were said like what was the point mm. and to me that's why i love that game is because the point was to play it yeah. you know you can subvert that like need to have closure as well and i guess that's what they did where it's more of an artistic approach to, to to narrative where it's like figure it out yourself and yeah there's certainly like films that have done that and there's probably books that can accomplish that at the same time but i think that a game like inside yeah it really in, even in contrast to something like limbo that has a fairly straightforward ending and it's like yeah. something that feels like a bit of a payoff after the weirdness that's taken place before it but right inside is, is very much just like what just happened and then instantly going to Google and searching like, exactly. Was what this just the happened? end of the game? Or? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, did I miss, is there an extra chapter? And there kind of, there kind of is a, a way to get like a little bit more out of it, some e- extra meaning to what is happening in this game. But, and, and then it also makes you go like, well, do the creators actually know? Yeah, like, exactly. Are they just being, obt- are they just being obtuse for the sake of it? Is it, is the point of it that, you know, this world, is, there's no meaning here or is there actually a correct truth, right. like an objective truth that, that they know that they're not going to share with anyone? Yeah. I don't know. I'd like, I would like to know, but yeah. Exactly. I would, I would, God, we, we want it pretty badly. Um, okay. Yeah. So like, I think at this point we've sort of established that interpretation is a thing with reading text, you know, and like I said, it's very simple 
to remark about it, but I really enjoy defining the simple things uh, just because I think that they're kind of taken for granted. And it's nice to know the building blocks of, you know, our experiences with movies and, and games and text and things like that. Now, if there's interpretations, the next part of what we're going to talk about is sort of understanding different ways that people privilege their interpretations. And I'll be very interested to hear what you kind of think about this, because in some ways, this is essentially kind of like three modes, three different types of readers or three different types of players and how they privilege interpretation. Um, And Brian Upton uh, compiled these three different modes. He calls them agendas Okay, from a forum uh, about Dungeons and Dragons that was running in like the early internet days on like a live board. And these were D and D players who amongst themselves were trying to discuss like what makes D and D fun for different people, because clearly like people are playing for different reasons. Right. Mm. And so we've kind of talked about actual books and movies beforehand. Now we're going to start talking about the open ended nature of, maybe video games themselves, but honestly just make believe kind of the story that's going on in people's heads as they play, which is still considered narrative play in Brian Upton's uh, definition. But the very first one is kind of the most straightforward one. And this is a goal oriented play. He calls it a gamist agenda. And here players have already established in advance a particular destination they want to reach in the play space. And again, the play space can be quite literally in a video game. So the play space of Breath of the Wild is the land of Hyrule. Mm. Uh, or we can look at a text as a play space as well. Uh, and with these, these are particularly dominant in like board games and sports where there's a victory condition. You know, if you have a gamist agenda in chess, it's to win. But if you have a gamist agenda towards, let's say, Dungeons and Dragons, you could say, I want to end this game as a knight who lives in a castle with servants. And from this point forward, I'm going to make interpretive choices or even play in a specific way that's going to get my character as close to that as possible. Mm. Um, An interesting application of this concept is when you apply it to like choice based like adventure games like Telltale's Walking Dead or Detroit. Mm-hmm. And how that this stance can actually harm narrative games because the player can, in advance, privilege an idea about their character that may not even be possible in the game itself. Yeah. <laughs> and if that happens, yeah. they're kind of searching for it this entire time, and then it never comes to pass, and then that's ultimately like frustrating to them. Yeah. And there's... It's like, uh, I, I think Mass Effect 3 is a good example again, because it was something where people thought that every choice they'd made would lead to a splinter board of, you know, many, many, many different endings, kind of like what Detroit actually achieved. Right. And it's a lot easier with a single, you know, t- uh, 12-hour experience versus something that's taken the place over hundreds and hundreds of hours f- over several years. And it's a re- it is despite that really remarkable what is it Quantic Dream yeah, yeah what they what they achieved like I've done uh, conversations on that in the past about just how many cause and effect spider webs and butterfly effects have come out of the decisions that happen throughout that game or the actions that happen throughout that game and 
pretty much cliche in these kinds of games to say that your actions have consequences, but this game has achieved it beyond what we've seen in right. any Walking Dead game, in Life is Strange, in, you know, any of those genre, really. Um, so I think that that deserves some praise. For sure. Uh, but, yeah, like the, the way that I played that game, I probably fit into one of those boxes where uh, for some reason I decided that my uh, Android character was going to behave as he was programmed to behave which mm-hmm. isn't what i think is natural for most people like most people want to do uh want to see that that character break free from that behavior and that ultimately leads to a better ending yeah and i know that because i plat- i platinum the game and i pretty much <laughs> saw like i'm not going to say i saw every ending because there are so many but i definitely saw like a good nine or ten different variations so yeah yeah it, it, it is interesting and the fact that I, I chose to play that way and it worked out that, you know, that's one of the options that there is. But like you said, there could very well be a different motivation from the player that doesn't uh, see itself present as the game goes forward. Like it, it, if you wanted to play that character with a romantic motivation, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's no romance option, you're like, oh, well, you know, yeah. I've just tried to pull that character close to this one and there's no yeah you know no time for that to happen so yeah you're right it's uh it's an interesting concept right and even if i i also think about it in the turn in the form of books where let's say there's like a series and you've grown attached to a specific character you think this character is the person you think they are uh and it's your goal you've almost established in your head already that their their arc is going to end in a certain way and then you see it like gradually not happening, you know, that can be a frustrating kind of deal as well. Yeah, you don't have to look at like Star Wars and yeah, <laughs> like there you go. Episode episode eight and like the extreme backlash that there is to what people saw with Luke Skywalker's character and it not being what they'd built up in their mind over many, many years of where is this character after we last saw them. And you get a great example of that. Yeah. So these next two agendas and stances kind of really start to um, apply to video games in a very close sense, especially in the sense of narrative play. And this is really in this arena where when people talk about, you know, the uniqueness of video games being open and you creating your own story, uh, these agendas kind of highlight how this happens. Mm -hmm. The first one uh, of these last two is coherence-oriented play. He calls this a simulationist agenda. And this is where players are working towards avoiding the disruption of certain privileged constraints. And the example he gives is historical battle reenactors. Sort of the outcome here is pre-decided and the moves need to reflect what really happened. And those are the preferred interpretive moves. So Mm. a soldier on a battlefield like isn't going to stand up or the other side of the historical reenactment isn't going to win because essentially like the overarching structure has been laid and now the interpretations need to be made in such a way that uphold that structure. And this is, like we said, particularly prominent in make-believe where moves are not about winning, but more about seeing where they take you. And the example I give is when I played Breath of the Wild, I role-played as Link from the Ocarina of Time in the sense that I always wore his armor from that game. I only used specific weapons that I thought he would use. I did all these things that the video game didn't tell me to do, but I made sure to do them so that they upheld this sort of simulation in my mind. And in the same way, you can kind of say like, oh, my Fallout 4 character is going to be 
this specific person. So I may even make moves that are like actually bad for me mm. in a gamist perspective in terms of like beating the game, but I'm going to make them because they uphold my coherence with what I've come to understand as my own narrative. Yeah. And when you have a character that's not you, it's easy to get, it's, well, it's not easy, but it's, it's sometimes fun for people to go, well, I'm motivated by saving my son or finding my dead wife or whatever it is in, in yeah, Fallout exactly. 4. <laughs> um, <laughs> All those and, fun things. Yeah. Um, so they can go, well, if I'm really here to do this, then I wouldn't help that person. Yeah. Or I would actually screw over this person, even though I'm trying to be good, because ultimately all I care about is X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that it's interesting when you're able to take the motivations of the character versus your own personal ethics or motivations. Yeah. And even on the flip side of that, that's honestly like when I play video games that are open like that, I don't like to do the evil path. Mm. But if you give me a game like The Witcher 3, where I am a specific character, then I'm going to make moves kind of like you said, that are Geralt like moves, right? Like sure. I'm going to make sure I get paid. I'm not going to care about the plights of these certain people or whatever. <laughs> and that can be fun in its own right too. And, yeah. and you know, that is all about withhold, like upholding the coherence of Geralt as a character, yeah. you know? But that's still a choice you've made, isn't it, to view him in that light because you have the option of, of having Geralt be a nice guy. Yeah. And that's not in conflict with anything because it's an option. Yeah, exactly. And in that way, it's almost like I've made it a, a little bit of the gamist mm. side came up where it's like, no, this is the goal. He is this yeah. dude. And you've um, you've latched on to something in his personality where you've gone I, like – very early in the game, you've probably thought, I think this is what he would do based on the small sample that I've seen him or know about him and mm -hmm. therefore everything I'll try and get to funnel through that that filter. Right. The last agenda is, I think, particularly fascinating. It's called closure-oriented play and he calls this the narrativist agenda. And here I view this person as someone who just wants to have the best time they can with the story. Sure. These are players who work toward maximizing or minimizing the potential for um, what Upton calls and what we've discussed in previous episodes as anticipatory play. So anticipatory play is just us thinking about um, moves in the future. So like a, an easy example is when I play Civilization VI, thinking 15 terms ahead, that's me anticipating the future. Um, players working in the narrativist agenda um, with closure-oriented play are thinking to themselves, okay, it's the beginning part of this story, so I'm going to create um, uh, interpretations that allow for a wide breadth of action in the future because anything can happen, right? Um, we're not trying to move towards any particular destination, uh, we're just trying to simply move in any direction mm. that offers longer chains of um, interpretation to come. And what's cool about this agenda too is there's a flip side to it where let's say we've kind of passed what we think is the midpoint of the story. We can tell that the rising action is coming or we're in the middle of the climax or we're in the final pages of the book. You then start to work in the opposite where you're closing down these chains of interpretation. You are now trying to arrive at that final conclusion. You're trying to figure out what the bow on the top of the, of the entire work is going to be so that hmm. we, don't, we aren't left with like a big open-ended kind of mess from beforehand. Yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting like 
when you're motivated by just having a good time playing a game, you will do things that don't make sense in the narrative. Like, right. uh, like, like go, to go back to Fallout or a, an Elder Scrolls game or something where you have a choice to make in, a, in like a quest line. And it's like everything I've done up to this point would, you know, suggest that option A is the right thing for my character. Mm-hmm. But this dialogue option is way too tempting and hilarious. Yeah. And I want to see where it goes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And ultimately here... Like closure-oriented choices aren't about guessing what's going to happen next or what we think and co- mm. what we think is correct, but instead, like what's going to make um, further play m- most open. Uh, and you know what what kind of happens is these play spaces, whether it's a video game narrative or a book narrative, are usually structured to have competing goals in your interpretation, yeah. so that your interpretive choices are interesting. Um, or maybe even like challenging and Brian Upton, you know, basically says like tensions exist between the agendas and within them. So it's not that a player is going to adopt one of these agendas at all times. Yeah. We kind of fluctuate between them, you know, and at one point in time, we're making moves that um, simulate Geralt at another time. We just want to make moves that are going to make our stories or I mean, our character story um, most open and then at that point in time, we want to make maybe a goal for the story. And now we're going to work towards choices um, that work towards that goal. And so this is where I I want to ask you, uh, you know, as an author, when you're considering your audience, do you think there's any um, truth to kind of these agendas? Can you kind of see these mapping on to how players could think like, what is just kind of your gut reaction to to Mm. all this? I think it's, like looking at these, it's so different to interpreting a book or writing a book because people don't have the um, a level of choice or or uh, the freedom to to decide like whether they're reading it for closure or for other reasons. Like it's kind of you get what you get, but mm-hmm. it yeah it, it does make you think like is this leading towards one ultimate. Uh, place and are people reading it with that in mind i'll never know because i don't know what's going through the mind of my reader i know right. as, as a writer maybe that there are you know three plot points that i want to be uh, resolved by the end of the story and then one overarching one that i want to leave open or something like that so that's definitely something that you'll be thinking about and and able to utilize to you know, it depending on what your intentions are. Like for my first book, I knew that I wanted to write a second book. So I had to kind of leave enough lingering that people wanted to pick up the second book to see what happens next, but also feel like if that's the only story they read and then they never, you know, pick up the second book, it's not completely incomplete or right. it doesn't leave people feeling unsatisfied. So it's, it's kind of that like, uh, the Star Wars episode four, A New Hope is a good example where mm-hmm. it's a complete story. Uh, and so so is episode seven, I guess, by being so similar. Yeah. But it it leaves you with a few questions like, oh, I wonder I wonder what does happen next. And was their uh effort to, you know, beat the bad guys successful? Like was it the knockout blow or was it just a small victory? And I think that if you're writing something with a sequel in mind, that that's that's a fairly a natural thing to do but if if you're writing like a one-off or a contained story like an indiana jones movie you don't want anything left over 
because it's uh it's kind of I don't know if serialized is the right term, but it's like self-contained and you don't want like it's like a Seinfeld episode. You want it to end and that's it. Like you don't have to have seen that one to watch the next one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't know if that answered the question, but that's that's what came to mind when you asked. Yeah, no, sure. I I understand what you mean. And and it allows I think having the this toolkit of understanding allows us to do two things. One, there's linear games where there's no choice in narrative. It's not about choosing dialogue options and all of that. And a great example is The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. And we can say here that we can judge the narrative as a string of story beats in this regard, right? Uh-huh. And if I were like reviewing a game like The Last of Us that put so much emphasis on the narrative, I would be approaching the narrative as this string of beats, much like uh, in a book or a movie, you know, was there ample uh, space for me to make predictions? Were my predictions thwarted? Um, Was it too predictable? And therefore it just kind of became boring. You know, where's the uncertainty Mm. and, and that kind of thing. And that can be useful for understanding those types of narratives. But then where I think video games become the most video game like is when we get to play make-believe and we get to adopt these different agendas between coherence and closure. And the example I want to like, I can give now is uh, the recent game that came out Octopath Traveler recent at the time of this recording, Mm -hmm. the characters in that game all have very predetermined storylines and we can judge those predetermined storylines with the tools that we just talked about. But there's also a lot of room for make-believe and coherence-oriented play and closure-oriented play that I thought was particularly profound and fun in the sense that the way you build your party, like who's in your party, what order are they standing in, like who's standing next to who, um, which story chapter do I want to pursue next over like another person's the game doesn't provide any meaning for that whatsoever. And then what would happen is I would get to fill in that space with my own interpretations. And these characters were very simple, right? They were just like a thief and all these archetypes. But I kind of got to create the characters for myself. And what I want to drive home is that is still narrative play in the context of video games. And one that is like absolutely particular to video games uh, as a form. And I think while it's amazing to be delivered linear storylines like the ones in the last of us that are, can be extremely satisfying and profound just as a book or a movie would be, Mm. I think where, where video games do. And of course there is like the, the fact that like you as a player are almost, you get that sense of connection that you wouldn't get in a passive sort of way. But I just, I, I guess I'm just rambling on to say that that's what a lot of people, I think, know about games right now and are right to know. And those games are prolific in that way. But that we should also think about how much sort of interpretation goes into open ended space that a game can allow us yeah, to have. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the linear nature of something like Bioshock or Metal Gear Solid or The Last of Us or Uncharted 4, like these games can tell amazing stories and provide an experience that people really connect with. But then to be able to 
take something that has a tight story and inject player choice and agency and freedom, something like The Witcher 3, for example, where you know there are a few choices that determine the end story, but regardless of what you choose and how long it takes you to get there, I feel like you know if, if you are persistent enough to make it to the end of that huge game, you still feel like, wow, I just experienced a story. Yeah. Not just like, um, you know, the way that people play maybe GTA 5 or something where, you know, I actually am a fan of that story, but it's such a, a long story and one that's probably not, like it's not a game known for its narrative, even though it is quite fun and there's a lot of different things that happen in that game. But mm-hmm. something like The Witcher 3, I feel like it's achieved similar to those single player experiences those linear experiences i mentioned like a a memorable story with twists and you know expectations that are subverted and memorable characters it's done all of that but it's also allowed people to get that environmental storytelling it's allowed people to role play uh similar to the way you talked about um the legend of zelda breath of the wild like your Geralt can grow a beard he can wear these clothes or he can use that sword or he can um decide to do all the treasure hunts or none of the treasure hunts and you can do all the witcher contracts or you can just do the main story if you think that that's what Geralt would do so i think that when a game can do something like that it shows you everything that can be accomplished in storytelling if done in the right way and there aren't many games that have pulled it off to that degree so i think that's one of the reasons that people hold that game in such high esteem yeah absolutely i think kind of the stuff i i want to end on here is that when i said at the top of the show that there's this school of thought that video games as a form kind of actively erode narrative possibility and that the two like there's an idea that there's basically one one of two things happening at a time and they can't mix and that is gameplay or that is the experience of the narrative Mm. And I don't really know how I come down on this anymore because I think the two can be combined in amazing ways where syncing a system up with a narrative like symbolism can be very profound or like syncing mechanics up with a narrative significance can be very profound. It's really hard to do. And we, we talked about interpretation basically being the aspect of anticipating what's coming next that anticipation the very act of thinking about the narrative needs like it takes it takes time which means there needs to be like a lull in the game like yeah i'm able to anticipate several moves ahead in civilization because i choose when the next turn goes on if Geralt was, or I mean, if The Witcher 3 was nonstop action, I would literally just never have the time to think about the narrative because I would always be in a total state of reaction, right? Mm. And so. Like Super Meat Boy or something. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> it's something, just constant it's movement, yeah. Just pure gameplay. Um, and so, like, the quiet moments of The Witcher where, like, you just killed an enemy and on their body was, like, a journal page. And you look at the journal page, and while you're walking back to the town to collect your loot or whatever, you're thinking about what was on the journal. And that's how like that rhythm of switching between um, actively playing or allowing your player to then think about the game or think about the narrative is, is a really tough balance. And it's one that you can feel in the opposite direction when 
you're kind of in the middle of like an intense boss fight or a really hectic level and then boom, a cutscene happens. And you're like, whoa, yeah. I wasn't even th- like, my mind was not in a narrative place. And so this feels very abrupt and like unnatural and almost like th- like hinders my ability to think about the narrative because I was just thinking about hmm. all of what it takes to play the game. You know, my mind was totally occupied with something else, yeah. you know. And I think a game that's uh, worth mentioning because it's so different to the ones we've been talking about, these open world uh, stories, is like Celeste. It's a platformer hmm. that came out this year and it's... For a 2D platformer, it has a really uh, interesting story and I think a unique story in that it's about this character's struggle with mental health mm-hmm. and the symbolic uh, the symbolism of climbing a mountain and overcoming that. But as the game goes on, and you mentioned like whether the gameplay and the story are at odds, but I think in this game, you when you realize what the story is about, the gameplay becomes a part of that effort to overcome this obstacle. Yeah this mental health obstacle and every time like it's a game like super meat boy where you fail over and over again but because of the cutscenes and because of the character and how it's built up through throughout the game you realize like every failure is like a, a symbol of the effort and the struggle that people go through as they try to overcome their own demons and like in this game quite literally you will fail over and over again trying to to beat the evil part of you, the evil like the the dark side of yourself yeah. as you try and reach this this conclusion and like the last part of that game is just like you you're so deep in that narrative of overcoming this obstacle that that you know the music ramps up you get so hyped and you're like I'm going to do it like you're so motivated to reach the top of this mountain mm-hmm. and you will fail over and over again but like you never like get frustrated and put the control down. Like it's so hard to like walk away from that part of the game because you feel like I'm so close to it and you actually can feel the narrative and the gameplay lining up together. It's really cool. Yeah, I know. And I think that is one difficult to do and like they should be applauded for doing it so successfully. But is also like to me right there, that that kind of example, that is like the power um, that the medium of games possesses. That's right. And one that, you know, it's it's really incredible when that stuff happens where, where the gameplay does have like a narrative implication and meaning to, to the degree that, cause, cause some people would say like the narrative of a particular game begins to break down completely when you've played it for like the 30th time and the actions that you're doing on the screen no longer have any narrative significance that you're just doing them for the sake of like playing the game again. Like when I'm on like my 15th playthrough of dark souls, <laughs> I'm not even thinking about it as like, with the same wondrous eyes that I did the first time. Now I'm just thinking about it very much as this system. And, and the idea there is that the the more exposure you have to the game, the more the narrative kind of like chips away. Mm-hmm. But with Celeste in particular, with the example you gave, that almost makes it more powerful. Yeah, that does make it quite unique in that aspect because to compare it to something like Super Meat Boy, which has a very basic story, there's still something there, but it's it's yeah. more like it's it's second it's very secondary to the gameplay experience. Right. And maybe the first time you play it, you watch those cutscenes and and feel maybe a slight motivation to save the princess or whatever the, their version of it is. Um Band Aid Girl. And uh like the if you're, you know, going for a the platinum or something that involves a lot of grinding to, you know, conquer every level you're going to be replaying levels over and over and you're not going to care about that small motivation from the story at all by the end of it. Right. But Celeste has managed to do that. 
Totally. Well, that's um, I think that about wraps it up for this episode, man. I I appreciate you coming on and talking with me. If there's maybe any last things that you want to mention before we wrap up, go for it. But um, yeah. Well, thanks. It's been it's been fun, and I think just to to, to quickly mention again the like in that experience of playing Celeste, I think it's quite powerful in that I feel like a film or a TV show couldn't really make you experience that uh association with what it's like to go through that experience mm-hmm. uh in terms of like the mental health side of it as someone that hasn't really had those struggles in my own life and i think that's what's so great about games is that they're able to have you connect as the you know the protagonist to put yourself in those shoes and that's something that i wrote about in my um in my ign article about growing an attachment to Ellie in The Last of Us and Clementine in The Walking Dead and just how that kind of changed my perspective towards the prospect of being a parent someday and mm-hmm. uh, in like ra- like the possibility of raising a daughter and, you know, feeling like, you know, if I feel this level of protection and, you know, wanting to nurture that child and see them succeed in a game, then of course I'm going to feel that so many more times in real life yeah. with my own children or with you know, nephews and nieces and that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, even though I've seen countless movies with that same theme or TV shows that have that same kind of narrative, like when you're holding the controller and experiencing these stories from the perspective of, you know, a character that's going through that for whatever reason, you just connect so much more. And I think, you know, that's the reason that I love games and I think a lot of other people would uh, understand that too. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Um, so yeah, that has been another episode of the greatest game, which of course you can find on okbeast.com. It is also on iTunes. If you would like to subscribe to the show there, um, you can follow okbeast on Twitter. It is at okbeast now. And, um, Jono, where can the people find you and your book in your yeah, work? So you can find me on Twitter at Jono himself, J O N O. And my podcast, Putting in Work, is on iTunes, Sound, uh, not SoundCloud, but Spotify and everywhere else that you look for them. Uh, my book, The Spy and the Maven, is available on Amazon. If you're in Australia, you can hit me up and I'll send you a signed copy. Nice. That's pretty easy. Uh, and yeah, just stay tuned for updates on book number two. Hell yeah, man. Well, best of luck with uh, getting that out there. And I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, looking forward to it, but we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. And I'm already looking forward to what the uh, subject matter of the next episode is going to be. I hope you guys all enjoyed it and we will see you next time.